you have a Bible church, you may open to the book of Mark, chapter 14. If you're unfamiliar with God's word, Mark is in the New Testament. It's the second book in the New Testament. And as I am fond of reminding people, there is no shame in using your table of contents. So, don't be flipping, hoping your neighbor doesn't know that you don't know where you're going. We'll have none of that in here. And um, many of the scriptures that I'll be reading and sharing today will also be projected. So if you came and, you know, you're new to church, don't have a Bible, thinking, oh man, strike one. No, nonsense. Um, Bring one if you have it, but if you don't, uh, you can follow along. Lord, I pray you would bless now the preaching of your word. Every time I walk up here into this pulpit, Father, I am gripped by two realities. One, I am amazed that you use men as weak as we are to speak the words of God. I don't get that. I don't get comfortable with that, Lord. I'm still not used to that. Quite frankly, I don't want to be Lord, the second thing I'm so grateful for walking up here is that the Holy Spirit of God is in this room. And that you have promised to bring to remembrance all that you, Jesus, commanded. I am going to speak your word, but Holy Spirit, we need you to bring it to remembrance and impress it upon our hearts. And so I thank you for your presence here. I pray that as a people, we would now be submitted to your word, responsive to your word, and not quick to presume that we're good and we've got it and we're obeying. We come presuming that for every one of us who is about to hear There is something specific that you want to say that will change the way we live. I ask you for that today, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I think there's a reason why temperance, or moderation, temperance is kind of an old-fashioned word, uh, is one of the classic cardinal virtues if you think about it, there are, there are countless situations in life where too much of a good thing becomes a bad thing. Too much of a good thing becomes a bad thing. You know, take, take work, for example. I was talking to a teenager here a couple of weeks ago, and we were having this discussion about whether work or rest is more pleasing to God. Okay, let's take a vote. How many think work is more pleasing to God? Okay, how many think rest is more pleasing to God? Yeah, how many of you hate the fact I set it up that way? Yeah, right, right, exactly, (laughs) exactly. Well, well, what's the point? This is where we ended with this conversation. We, We agreed that work is good, but too much work will kill you. We agreed that rest is good, but too much rest will impoverish you. 
Moderation is the name of the game, whether it comes to how much you work, how much you talk, how much you drink, or how much you spend. And it's also one of the virtues that we're trying to teach our kids at home right now. If you're a parent with young kids, um, here's, here's what we're trying to help them understand. It is good to have fun. It's always good to have fun. It's, there's a time to be silly. It is not good to be crazy. Not good to be crazy. And so that means that it's okay to laugh if your brother makes a funny joke. But when he makes the joke, we're not going to throw spaghetti across the table. And we're not going to joke back by balancing a cup of milk on top of our heads. That's crazy. It's okay to have fun. It's okay to be silly. But not crazy. We want to have a good time, but not let things get out of control. I know I sound like a parent. I can just remember myself being younger, hearing older people saying this stuff, thinking, that's such an old thing to say. Well, I'm saying it. (laughs) I'm saying it. Stay balanced. Stay centered. Too much of pretty much anything becomes a bad thing. Or does it? Is that always true? I was thinking this week that it's, it's increasingly common for people to identify themselves as spiritual, a spiritual person, but not necessarily a Christian. I'm cool with Jesus and all, but I actually had a conversation that went like this. I, I took this class on Eastern religions, and I really like some of the stuff that I heard. You know, I think there's something to learn from, from every religion. So I just try to keep an open mind and, and be a good person. I, I like to think that I take a pretty holistic view of life. We're not just physical beings. You know, I'll grant that. There's a spiritual dimension to who we are. But it's just important to stay balanced and not go off the deep end. There's a lot of just crazy religious people out there. And that's where we get in trouble. People need to learn that religion is a good thing, but as with anything else, in moderation, with temperance. People need to be tolerant and and take a more middle-of-the-road approach to their faith. It's, It's working pretty well for me. I don't have a lot of enemies. Maybe you've said that. Maybe you've heard that. I I wonder how you would respond. Let me tell you how I respond to that. If you told me that, I would say to you that it sounds like you think of going all in on Christianity as something dangerous or radical or too extreme. And friend, you know what? You are exactly right. You are exactly right. And I wonder if you realize just how extreme Christianity, genuine Christianity, actually is. I don't think you know the half of it. Matthew 13:44 The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field 
which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Luke 14, if anyone comes to me, Jesus says, and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Mark 8, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Philippians 3, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Church, if that's not extreme, I don't know what is. That's radical. That, that's fanatical. In some ways, that, that's no different than terrorist that we see on the news. It's simply a different allegiance. It's all in. There's nothing moderate about the Christian faith because there's nothing moderate about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why do I say that? Well, I say that because the gospel isn't this, Mark isn't this nice little story about how special you are, how much gentle Jesus loves people, and how we should all learn to follow his example. Okay, that is not the gospel. You know what the gospel says? The gospel says you're a mess. <laughs> it says you're a mess. You could amen that if you so wish. Okay? Let there be no hesitancy about this. Otherwise, we're going to have a different sermon on self-righteousness in here. The gospel says you're a mess. That's right. That's right. You have violated the perfect law of a holy God. And you deserve to be judged. But there's hope for you. Because God loves you. And sent his son to live and die and rise from the grave so that you could be completely cleansed of all your guilt and made right with your Father forever. Jesus didn't come to improve your life, friend. He came to completely save you. And if you'll trust Jesus and Jesus alone to save you, repenting of your rebellion, turning over the the reins of your life completely to him, then he'll make you a new creation and give you fullness of joy that no one can take away from you. You can't earn it. 
You don't deserve it. It's a gift. And when you receive that gift by faith, Jesus says, I am yours and you are mine. You are first mine because I created you. And you're doubly mine now because I redeemed you. He's got two claims on your life. Creation, redemption. And as he makes those claims as our creator and savior, he is worthy of our highest praise, our greatest devotion, and there is nothing moderate about being a Christian because there is nothing moderate about following Jesus. So look at Mark 14. Mark 14. If you're, if you're unfamiliar with Mark, this is an account based on eyewitness testimony about who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. And when we get to Mark 14, we reach a critical turn in this story. Because for the last three years, the last 13 chapters, Jesus has been teaching in public, teaching in private. But now... He's reached his final days on the earth. He's about to die. And everything from Mark 14, 1 forward paves the way for that. So let's begin reading in in verse 1. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you and whenever you want, you can do good to them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who is one of the twelve, went to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And they sought an opportunity to betray him. Folks, I hope you realize, as I said earlier, that the same Jesus who was in that room, Simon the leper's house, when this woman walked in, is in this room right now. Through the power of his Holy Spirit. He's right here. And his challenge to you and I today is that there should be nothing temperate or restrained 
about your devotion to Christ. That's his challenge. Nothing temperate, nothing restrained, nothing moderate about your devotion to Christ. I'll say it this way, and I'm going to keep saying it this way till I walk out of this pulpit. Jesus is worthy of extravagant devotion. Jesus is worthy of extravagant devotion. That truth hasn't changed. And I want to explore the claim of this passage, that idea under two headings. First, the cost of our devotion. And second, the worth of our Savior. So let's start with the cost of our devotion. Mark tells us that this woman came up to Jesus while he was eating at Simon the leper's home. And we don't know if this is a man that Jesus healed or not. It may very well have been. But regardless, during the meal, a, a woman comes up to him with a decorative flask made out of alabaster. That's a white, translucent stone. And we're told that the flask was filled with pure nard. I don't spend a lot of time in the fragrance section of department stores. So I had to look up, what is nard? Well, nard, Jesus' day, was an aromatic oil extracted out of the root of a plant that lived in India. That meant nard was an import. And to have it in pure, undiluted form was something else. In other words, it was highly desirable and very, very expensive. So think of it this way. This is not the Tommy Hilfiger gift set that guys get when they go in shopping for the wives around Christmas sort of thrown in with your jewelry purchase. Okay, This is more like the 1775 bottle of Jerez de la Frontera that Vladimir Putin drank at the Masandra Winery in Crimea a few weeks ago. Some of you may have seen this. He drank a bottle of wine that Ukrainian prosecutors argue was worth $90,000. No comment. (laughs) But we learn in verse 5 that this flask of ointment was worth 300 denarii. That is an entire year's worth of wages for the average worker in Jesus' day. So do the math. Think median income. That's tens of thousands of dollars. If you live in Midlothian, it's even more. And Pliny the Elder, a first century historian, wrote that the best ointment is preserved in alabaster. All that to say, it was the kind of thing that you didn't so much use as you passed down from generation to generation to generation. Like a family heirloom. That's what this flask was. And we also know that back then it was customary to anoint with oil the head of a guest who came into your home. Jesus didn't get that when he went to a Pharisee's home once and was insulted. Rightly so. But you didn't use nard for that. And if you did, you certainly wouldn't use it in this quantity. So look back at verse 7. Verse 3. Look back at verse 3. She takes the flask, breaks the neck off, and pours the entire bottle 
over Jesus' head. The entire bottle. What's up with breaking the flask? Here's what that means. When the flask is broken, guess what you can't do? Preserve any of the nard. If you break it, it's an aromatic oil, you have no way of sealing it back up. All of it gets used. All of it is going to be poured out. None of it is going to be held back. That's what breaking it signifies. Her devotion was extravagant. It was tremendously costly from a material standpoint. But but notice, her devotion wasn't just costly from a material perspective. It was costly from a social perspective. Look at at verse 4. Look at verse 4. The people around her, these would have been predominantly men and most likely some of Jesus' disciples began to scold this woman saying, why did you waste all of that on Jesus? I mean, have a little temperance. Show a little moderation. You could have sold the bottle and had a year's worth of money to give to the poor. Are, are, Are you crazy? Friend, if you choose to live a life of complete and total devotion to Jesus, where you are allowing the Spirit of God to govern your every thought, your every word, your every deed, then you should expect the world around you, including some profession Christians, to think you are out of your mind. You should. That you're extreme, that you need to dial down the religion meter. You know, it's interesting, I hope you notice this, that the people scolding the woman weren't saying, You know, you ought to stop loving God and start sinning more. Notice that? It's not what they were saying. They were saying, dial it back a bit. You know, let up on the gas. Enough with the extremism. A a little more temperance. Have some moderation. We've got the poor to take care of. Jesus is into that too, right? They were saying she needed to stop being so radical and start being more practical, more logical, and balanced. It's fine if you love Jesus, but there are other things that matter too in life, good things like caring for the poor. So think of it this way. You mean you're not going to that party? Because you're concerned the people there will hurt your relationship with God? I mean, isn't that a little extreme? I mean, Jesus wants us to love all all sorts of people. All sorts of people are coming to the party. So how are you going to love them if you don't go? You mean you're not taking that promotion because it will limit the time you can spend serving your church? I mean, isn't that a little extreme? You've been waiting for this promotion your entire life. It's, it's your dream job. Think about how you could help all these clients. I mean, doesn't God say that we're to do good to all men? I mean, church is great, but dude, take the promotion. You're going to adopt a child with what disability? Isn't that a little extreme? I mean, what, what happened to caring for the kids you already have? Doesn't God want you to provide for them too? You, you told who that our business practices are unethical? 
Isn't that a little extreme? You, you know he could fire you, right? What, what's your family going to do if you don't have a job? Why did you keep an entire line of people at Chick-fil-A waiting while you invited that guy to your community group? I mean, isn't that a little extreme? Everyone was watching you, man. They weren't just watching you. They were listening to you. And they weren't just listening to you. They were feeling awkward the longer you talked. I mean, show some consideration and quit making a fool of yourself in public. You feel the tension? I'm convinced. The reason I bring up those examples is because I'm convinced that the greatest single spiritual danger that we face in this church is not the temptation to scandalous sin, though the allure of sexual immorality or financial corruption never goes away. I'm convinced that the greatest single danger we face as a church, and then in particular Christians in America like me face, is moderate Christianity. Temperate. Christianity. Casual Christianity. Nominal Christianity, which I'll warn you is not Christianity. Because Jesus didn't live and die and rise from the grave so you could take your faith and put it on a nice little shelf next to kids and sports and retirement and golf and cars. Or education. He didn't do that. You do that, and you'll be applauded as a well rounded American. I pray that this church never becomes known for being well rounded Americans. Because Kingsway, Jesus demands all of you. You can't hold anything back if you're going to follow him. If, if the alabaster flask is your life, then following Jesus means being broken and poured out in, in your entirety. Okay, all of your time. All of your money. All of your gifts. All of your energy. All your affection. All your desires. All your intellect. Friend, he gave it to you for one reason, to love him with it. It's a gift with a goal of lifelong extravagant devotion to Christ. And I exhort you to realize that if your life makes complete sense to all the people around you, then you're either living in a Christian bubble and you have abandoned God's mission in the world, or you're not following Jesus. And don't try to convince me that despite the complete absence of visible devotion to Christ in your life, that you really love him on the inside. That is nonsense. If you love Jesus, it will be visible. And it will be costly. Because that's the same two things that were true of this woman. Her devotion to Jesus, her extravagant devotion, was visible and it was costly. And the same has been true of every genuine Christian ever since that day. Examine your life.
I've got to examine my life. We, we have to look for evidence, fruit, of visible, costly devotion to God. Don't allow devotion to things that are good. Like loving your kids, developing your talents, supporting your company, caring for the poor. Crowd out your devotion to what is best. Knowing and loving God. With all your soul, all your heart, and all your strength. So, so maybe that means turning off the TV so you can read your Bible. Rest is good. Jesus is better. Maybe that means adjusting your lifestyle so you can give away more of your money to support gospel ministry. New furniture is good. Jesus is better. Maybe that means leaving your circle of comfortable friends in the foyer today and walking over to meet somebody new. Okay? Comfortable friends are good. Loving people like Jesus Always better. But maybe you hear me say that stuff and you think, well, Matthew, what, okay, what does this have to do with Mark 14? What, what do any of those things have to do with, with Jesus? I mean, maybe the one about reading your Bible instead of watching TV makes sense, but, but it's not like Jesus is sitting in a room somewhere and, you know, after the sermon today, I can just kind of, well, I've been wondering what to do with my random alabaster flask of nard. I guess I'll just come over and break it. And, Hi, Jesus! You know, glub, 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 glub. Yeah. Right? I mean, we don't have him waiting in a room in our home. Or do we? What did he say to us? If you do it unto the least of these, you've done it unto who? He is everywhere around you. Jesus might not be waiting in a room at your home for you to pour a flask of nard over the top of his head. But you know what he is waiting for? For you to decide that in every area of your life, without exception, he is going to be worthy of extravagant devotion. And that as a result of that decision, you are going to follow him in loving all the people around you, however you can, doing whatever you can, the way he did. That's the cost of our devotion. And I want, I want you to notice how Jesus commends this woman in verse 8 as a result of the cost of her devotion. Verse 8, he says, she has done what she could. Done what she could. What does that mean? Well, I think that means that anything you do in this life as an act of obedience to God and as an expression of your devotion to the Lord is extravagant love for the King. Anything you do in this life as an act of obedience to God, as an expression of your love for Him, becomes an act of extravagant devotion to the King. So I want to ask you, friend, are you living that way? 
Or is there some part of your heart, some part of your, your wallet, some part of your calendar, some part of your desires where if you're honest, you said, Lord, I want to love you, but not that much. I'm, I'm loving you, you know, but, but I don't play at the high stakes poker tables. Small bills. It's my approach. I mean, what would possess somebody? Chris mentioned this earlier today. What would possess somebody to sell everything that they had and move to another nation to tell people about Jesus? And why is it that we presume that we are not the one called to do that? I mean, what what would possess somebody to stay in a marriage when it feels like all work and no fun? What would possess someone to get up every two hours for weeks on end to care for a screaming kid without grumbling or complaining? Every single one of those things can become an act of extravagant devotion to Jesus if you do it unto him. So don't compare yourself to people in Christian books. Okay, I thank God for David Platt. I thank God for books like Radical. But I would add to the list of those who have moved halfway across the world and all sorts of amazing things that many of us will never do, I would add to that list a mom. who is sacrificially loving her kids without grumbling or complaining that they might grow up one day to call upon Jesus as their Savior. I would add to that a spouse who is caring for a disabled husband or wife with tears in their eyes and joy in their heart because they refuse to believe no matter how much that body deteriorates that that man or woman bears the image of God. I would add to that the teenager under enormous pressure from his friends who refuses to compromise his sexuality because King Jesus bought his body. Okay, all of that may never show up in a book. All of that is extravagant devotion to the Savior. The world might say it's crazy Jesus says it's beautiful, which means we have to stop comparing ourselves to the Christian next to us or the Christian in the book and saying, well, I'm not like that. You know what? You're not. God knows that. God's call for you is not to become David Platt. God's call for you is to do what you can. Back to verse 8. What did Jesus say? She has done what she could. God is not going to give all of us the same opportunities to show extravagant devotion to Christ in the same way. But every one of us has the same call, the same command to use all our time, all our energy, all our money, all our resources in a lifelong act of extravagant devotion to Jesus. It's going to look different, but the call is the same. The call is the same. And what made the woman's actions beautiful wasn't that nobody else 
had ever made a sacrifice so costly. What made her action beautiful is that the depth of her devotion was commensurate with the object of her devotion. She didn't walk in and proclaim, Lord, isn't my sacrifice to you amazing? I think I'll write a book. (laughs) Nothing wrong with writing books. Thank God for books that stir up our faith and provoke us to follow him. But what motivated this woman wasn't so much a fixation on the cost of her devotion. She she didn't walk in and say, Lord, I hope you realize how much this is about to cost me. She didn't do that. What she was fixated on was the worth of her Savior. That's what what filled her gaze. It wasn't the greatness of her sacrifice. It was was the worth of her Savior. That's the second thing I want us to see in here. The cost of our devotion, the worth of our Savior. So so look at what Jesus says in verse 7. Verse 7, for you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, good to them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Think about that. In one sense, Jesus could have said, listen, people, I'm the son of God. That means I am infinitely worthy than any poor person who's a human being on this earth. End of story. Bow down. He could have done that. But notice that Jesus didn't draw a contrast between himself and the poor so much as a contrast between you always and you will not always. In other words, he was very much identifying himself with the poor. And he was about to become poor. He was simply saying, This woman has done the right thing with this money, this gift, because you will not always have me with you. It was a matter of opportunity. And Jesus knew something that the woman herself may not have understood. Jesus knew that he was about to die and that in a few short days, his body was going to be buried. Why? Why? Because he was about to pour out his life on the cross for the sin of the world. You you want to talk about poverty? You want to talk about becoming poor? Then look no further than the creator of the universe bleeding to death so you could be saved. 2 Corinthians 8. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. What does that mean? Well, it means that if you want to know why Jesus is worthy of extravagant devotion, then you need to look no further than what he has done for you at the cross. You want to know why? Matthew, why is this Jesus worthy of all this extravagant devotion you keep waving your arms about? Well, I'll tell you why. It's because of what he has done for you at the cross. That's why. Because it's at the height of his humiliation, the peak of his poverty, that we most clearly see his glory. Isaiah 53 But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. 
Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. That's who Jesus is for you, friend. And so if you ever find yourself asking the question, is Jesus really worth it? When you hit a situation this week and you think, if I'm honest, I know what extravagant devotion to Christ would look like right now, but I really want to go this way. What is it that's powerful enough to turn our wondering hearts back to him? To to convince us over and over again, day after day, that he's worthy of extravagant devotion. Here's what it is. It's the cross of Christ. That's it. That's it. We have to see him hanging there, bleeding, beaten, mocked, scorned, having done Absolutely nothing wrong. Absolutely everything right. So that you and I would never know the wrath of God. Never. Ever. Not a drop. And we have to realize that that he wasn't just crushed for our sake. He was annihilated. He didn't just suffer for you and then get patched up. He, He died. How can you look at the cross and question if God loves you? How can you look at the cross and wonder if he's really worthy of your devotion tomorrow? When we see what he's done for us, rightly, I don't think you can. I don't think you can. And so tomorrow morning, friend, when you wake up and wonder, what is it about Jesus that renders him worthy of extravagant devotion today, 
I pray that it's the same answer that the hosts of heaven have been giving to that question for thousands of years. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you. Why? Worthy are you. Why? For you were slain. That's it. That's it. That is why Jesus is worthy of your devotion. Because he was slain. And by your blood, you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. And I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb who what? Was slain. That's why He's worthy to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Listen, that means that the question you and I should be asking this week is not, is Jesus worthy of extravagant devotion? The answer from the dawn of time has been yes. The question we should be asking this week is why do sinners like us ever get the privilege of lavishing devotion on Him? We don't deserve that privilege. But He has given it to you. Don't waste it. Don't waste it. Don't presume that because you know a lot of things about Jesus or you've spent a lot of time around Christians that Jesus is the object of your deepest devotion. You know who knew a lot of things about Jesus and spent a lot of time around Christians? Judas Iscariot. And he betrayed the Lord. The fact that you're sitting here does not mean that Jesus is receiving extravagant devotion from your life. He's worthy of it. But don't presume it, friend. Don't presume it. And whatever happens this week, may what he has done for you at the cross so fill your gaze that when you're caught deciding, do I go this way? Do I go that way? Do I speak up? Am I quiet? Do I raise my hands in worship? Do I not? Do I keep loving that guy? Do I not? you would see him dying for you and that the spirit of God would birth extravagant devotion in your heart. Let's pray. Lord, in so many ways, this is a simple message. You are worthy of extravagant devotion. But Lord, it's the simple ones that are so hard to live. And so, Father, I pray right now that you, Holy Spirit, would do a work in my heart and in this church of cleansing us from every last drop of moderation in our love for you. Of convicting us of every part of our heart where we have said, I love you, but not, not that much.
pray you would forgive us, Lord, for where we have seen and heard year after year that you poured out all of yourself to save us. And in response, we have arrogantly held back part of us. I pray you would take all of us right now. I pray that every part of our calendar and our checkbook and our affections would all be yours. And wherever, Lord, you have ceased to be worthy in our eyes and look rather normal, rather small, that you would redirect our gaze back to the cross and we would remember once again as your people or perhaps for the very first time in our life that there is nothing small about your devotion to save us. And we love you for that. We praise you for that. And I pray, Father, that as we sing these songs, that you would make what we have heard, what you have commanded us to do and be in your word, true of our life. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.